1: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, guys, thank you so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, two widely held stocks going in two different directions lately. The big question is, which move might mean more to your money's next move? Microsoft or Amazon? We debate that with the investment committee. Joining me for the hour on this Friday are Jenny Harrington, Bryn Talkington, Rich Saperstein, and Pete Najarian. He is the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. It's good to see everybody. Let's go to the wall. Let's check out the markets. Well, what was red in the pre-market is now green and decidedly so. Dow's at the highs of the day, good for 200 points. S&P's good for about a half percent. NASDAQ having a nice rebound today, though NASDAQ's still on pace for its worst week since mid-July, about a month. So Here's what I want to do, Pete. I want to attack the market from this angle. I want to take a look at Microsoft and I want to take a look at Amazon. One's been going up. One's been going down. And I want you to tell our viewers which one you think is more important to the market's next move overall and why.
2: I would say it would be Microsoft, and the reason I say that is they, they're a company that has been building and growing, and it's, it, the, the consistency of where they are going, I think, is telling us a lot about the broader side of the market, a lot of the different uh, clients that they've got, and the growth and the market share that they are stealing. Each and every quarter, Scott, when you look at where they are with Azure with 50% growth, when you look at the fundamental story of the company itself, I love Amazon. I think they're a great company. They do a lot of things right. Their e commerce business is untouchable. And then you look at their, obviously, the cloud with AWS, very important as well. But it had such a great run clearly through the pandemic, but the extension of the run through the pandemic that we are seeing with a with stock like Microsoft has been just extraordinary. And I think that. It's a company that, as we look at it, they continue to go with different verticals of where they are going and how they're making their money. Obviously, cloud is the primary focus, but that's not the only focus. And Satya Nadella knows it, so he's expanding that company into all kinds of different areas for for more or bigger revenue. So I'm. I continually think that this is a, not only a great stock, but I think it's a great leader. We need this type of a stock, I think, to be one of the names and why we are near all-time highs. I know we had a week where we've pulled back you know, fairly significantly, but I think the reality is, going forward, we look at a stock like Microsoft as one of the pillars, I think, of the market.
1: And Pete, you know, as you always do, you put your money where your mouth is. You bought new Microsoft calls today.
2: I did. You know, we continually have uh, obviously option activity everywhere, but today we had some monstrous buying in in Microsoft again, even with the stock as it's breaking out and hit up towards the 305 levels. We had the 305 call buying. We had 17,000 calls bought for next Friday's expiration. They also bought Scott out to September. Of 2022, they were buying the 320 strike calls. That tells me that there are some smart money out there that doesn't think that this run is over just yet, and Microsoft's got a little bit more upside.
1: Rich Saperstein, it's good to see you again. It's it's been a while. I'd like to get your, your views on the market through this prism as well. And I think part of what we're trying to get at here is, you know, Microsoft going up may be more important, and Pete certainly thinks so. Because it's going to be hard to get a big downdraft in the market as we sit what some felt like was the precipice of that for much of this week. If Microsoft remains strong, if Apple remains strong, yeah, maybe you can withstand a little bit of weakness in Amazon. But you're not going to be able to withstand a, a, a more dramatic fang rollover, right?
3: Yeah, I'm going to agree with Pete on all those great points. Uh, and it's borne out by what's happened in the last year with the market up 30 percent and uh, Amazon is really flat. Uh, But I think we have to look at both of them as controlling uh, roughly 60% of the cloud, where the cloud has a secular tailwind of uh, big data, artificial intelligence. Um, So they're both uniquely positioned. Now, where I look at it is uh, they're they're taking two different paths where uh, Amazon, 60 billion of uh, operating cash flow Um, They reinvested roughly 50 billion of that, Okay, whereas uh, Microsoft, 77 billion, they reinvested in CapEx, 21 billion of it. So uh, Microsoft has returned roughly 55 billion to shareholders, uh, roughly two and a half percent of market cap. So you have Microsoft returning capital to shareholders while they're growing and you have Amazon plowing more money back into their business, back into CapEx. So they're pursuing two different courses. And that's why you see Amazon where, you know, in 2018, that stock was flat for 20 months, starting in uh, roughly September of 2018. So I think uh, Amazon is episodic where their CapEx investments start to add incrementally, whereas Microsoft keeps plowing along. I think they're both great names to own.
1: Bryn, you own Amazon, you own Microsoft, you own uh, Apple. And look, I mean, maybe it raises the pressure, if you will, on those kinds of stocks that they have to continue to perform or else you may get the 10 percent correction that some have been calling for in a week where it felt like we might be on the cusp of something. The fact that Microsoft continues to hold up, that Apple was right around a new high, is that more important than than the fact that Amazon hasn't traded all that well lately?
4: Well, I think with Amazon, you definitely have to have the factor of, you know, Jeff Bezos stepping aside to have Andy Jassy come in. Now, you know, similar to when Satya came, Satya Nadella came into Microsoft, I think it was in 2014, you know, satya nadella had started at microsoft in the 90s well andy jassy also started at amazon in the 90s that being said having that big change at the helm of amazon i think definitely could be part of the reason but i think to your point in terms of you know the consistency going forward of the apple microsoft and amazon what i do know about these two names is they're going to continue to put up huge monster cash flow huge earnings The big question is ultimately, what is the market willing to pay for those earnings? I think if I had to look at the two independently, I feel there's more comfort around Microsoft only because you still have that same CEO, that same story. That being said, you know, Andy being there since the 90s, he started when this company was just a few people and is now at the helm. So I think they'll both do well long term. But I like Microsoft better just because I do like that big gaming aspect. Amazon has Twitch, but, you know, Microsoft on the gaming side is, is huge and continues to be a really nice contributor. So for that, I think I would lean more into Microsoft than Amazon.
1: I got you. And Jenny, I come to you last for a reason. You don't have a dog in this fight. I mean, you don't own either of right. the stocks, but you do own Facebook. So you do understand the power of the Fang plus stocks. And maybe it's better that you don't have a dog in the fight to comment because you're not emotionally tied to either direction of Amazon or Microsoft. You can just speak completely openly about what you think about the power of these stocks in what feels like a bit of an uncertain market.
5: Right. and so in that, I kind of refuse to play the would you rather game. Um, you could make an argument that Microsoft has more power just because it has a heavier weighting than Amazon, but I'd rather take a step back and look at the fan group overall. And what you see is that they still maintain a 25 plus percent weight of the overall S&P 500. The last time we had a group of five stocks make up that weight was in 2001, and back then it was Microsoft, Cisco, GE, Intel, Exxon. And what those five stocks did in the following decade was they were kind of flat. And I- with respect to market cap in the S&P 500, I suspect that we're going to see these five remain kind of flat with respect to market cap weighting, which means they will not have the relative outperformance that they've had in the past. So, you know, if you, this is my analogy. It might be a little botched, but my, my analogy is if you were a lacrosse bro in college and that made you cool then when you went into adulthood, you had to reinvent yourself. If these five stocks led the outperformance in your portfolio over the past four years and you want to have that kind of about performance again, you're going to need to re- to reposition your performance, sorry, your portfolio. Um, to outperform going forward. I don't think that they're going to lead the way in the same way they did. They might maintain that 25%. They'll probably hold up. To everyone's point, these are amazing companies, and I don't think they're going to crumble. I don't think they're going to lead the market down by 10%, but I don't think they're going to outperform in the same way. One other thing, too. They are 25%, but they're also only 25%. So let's say they did all go down by, by 10%. That's only two and a half percent off the S and P five hundred. That's up nearly twenty percent this year. It's not that bad. Into, like if they, you know, have a real pullback, it's not that bad relative to the overall market. Only um, I well, think the market can well, hold up. Well, mm-hmm.
1: well, let's. I mean, if, sure. If if they go down, and the money <laughs> that comes out of those stocks goes somewhere else, sure, it's not that big of a mm-hmm. problem. Problem becomes, if the money starts coming out of those stocks and money's coming out of other stocks, then you get the downdraft, right? I mean, you've got to be careful about the scenario in which you paint.
5: Okay, fair enough. But, but I am assuming that the money goes somewhere else. And that's because we don't have great alternatives, right? It's not a great idea to plunk it in cash. Cash basically has no return. You're still stuck with bonds offering 1.25% on the 10 year. You really can't find return in bonds. So I am assuming that if money were to come out of those, it would be ultimately reinvested in stocks, maybe not in the top in the top five, not in the, in the fang names. So you're right, I am presuming that yeah, it gets reinvested I mean, elsewhere and continues yeah. this broadening out of leadership in the market.
1: I mean, it feels that way in maybe practical theory. You think money would come out and it would just go find a home somewhere else unless you have such a period of uncertainty for a variety of reasons, be it the Delta variant, upcoming taper, etc. And then money is just looking for the mattress rather than the stock market for a period of time. Could be a short period of time, could be a, a little bit longer. What, what, el- what else is interesting, Rich Saperstein, uh, and I would like to get your broader market view. You haven't been with us for a while. You are one of the country's top financial advisors. I'm curious as to just where you think we are as we end a fairly turbulent week for stocks, one in which you had many folks starting to ask, is this the long-awaited correction? Even Tom Lee who has been as bullish as anybody, if not more so, and who is calling for a quote-unquote everything rally, says the market has taken a, a quote half-empty approach to the news of late rather than a half-full, sort of you know, playing into where sentiment seems to be. Now, he's obviously still bullish, but what about you?
3: Well, sure, a very common discussion with clients. There are fears of uh, COVID, uh, tapering, fiscal and monetary cliff, uh, tax reform, just a host of issues. But I, I like to point them to a couple other directions. most important one is that September 6th supplemental unemployment benefits expire. And we're going to have this uh, complete shortfall of, of labor being addressed now because every business, everywhere you go, you're seeing help wanted signs. And finally, starting in September, we'll start to see some alleviation of that possibly putting up 500,000 to a million jobs a month being grown in this country. Big point. Market put up great numbers this year in terms of earnings. We expect that trend to continue. The free cash flow of the market is roughly $1.1 trillion, a record high, roughly 4%. Uh, that's still great compared to a quarter uh, percent 10-year treasury. The other point which supports the large fangs is that The China crackdown on a lot of their, you know, really solid, large companies is only going to cause investments into our large cap tech companies. There'll be a rethinking of that uh, China position in everyone's portfolio. And finally, uh, you know, look, the market is selling at uh, elevated multiples. But when you look at other alternatives, we have this discussion with our clients constantly um, against the Fed tapering. We still believe that the stock market will continue to move higher, especially with uh, EPS expectations of, let's call it 220 next year and 240 the year after.
1: So does that suggest that you would buy any dip? Because this was a week as well in which we had a notable technician come on our show, move the market, in fact, when he said don't buy the dip. And that was in the midst of one of the sell-offs that we experienced this week it sounds to me like you wouldn't agree with that
3: i would not as long-term investors uh we see a secular growth environment where this country and globally we're going to have ongoing growth over the next few years and that's going to lead to multiple expansion the stock market today is largely dominated by technology companies tech is being pulled forward dramatically as a result of COVID. So if you look at the tech sector, um, beta in the last decade has dropped from two to one. The margins are double the market. The growth of revenues of, of uh, EPS is ahead of the market. So I'm comfortable with an elevated multiple as a result of 60% of the S&P uh being in uh healthcare uh technology and communications right now so i think investors have to look around at not only the absolute level of uh, pricing in the market but also what are the alternatives today and how do you rely on growth going forward and if you rely on a growth story
1: then you want to own stocks
3: you want to buy the dips,
1: and i guess you want to buy tech the other interesting thing Bryn, that you know joe terranova Uh, just emails me talking about buybacks and how supportive they are going to be how how supportive they have been and how supportive they're going to remain for the overall market and he specifically mentions how we started the whole program today how mega cap tech is leading the way in buybacks so under the surface look there there are kind of two different push and pulls you've got fair amount of buybacks you've got other weakness under the surface i would point to small caps for example even though the russell's having a nice bounce on this friday It's down, I don't know, nine and a half, 10 percent from its from its 52 week high. That's making some people nervous. What do you think about the premise of buybacks being a pillar of strength underneath the market that can help you right now in what seems to be perhaps a time of need?
4: I think that uh, year to date, we've had six hundred and eighty some odd billion in announced buyback buybacks, and I think that's always the trick, they're announced, they're not implemented, but it's absolutely a bullish undertone, undercurrent to the market, because it states, it really speaks to the health and the confidence of these underlying companies that are announcing the buybacks. I mean, you also have, you know, earnings continue um, to go higher, and maybe the rate of change is going to slow because we had such a big year-over-year delta, but still, the earnings are going higher. I do want to hit on a point that Rich uh, mentioned that I think is really important. You know, we haven't been in China, um, I haven't been a fan of China for some time um, for, for a host of reasons, but I think that with the government of China coming in and, you know, derating these tech companies and really making a lot of them somewhat quasi-state-owned enterprises, I think that the money longer term, because the only really, I think, A front to U.S. you know U.S. tech was Chinese tech but I think investors are really going to question that and are going to have to put a whole new multiple on those Chinese tech companies and I think that will continue to have more money flow to the U.S. because outside of China the U.S. really is the only game in town for big tech invention invention you know innovation outside of some smaller countries and so I think there's lots of reasons you know that are whether it's buybacks earnings you know, the, the, the Chinese derating of tech going into mm-hmm. U.S. tech to remain bullish. You know, that being said, I do think the other, the other, the other points of Fed tapering, the rate of taper, you know, the, the Delta, the new one that comes behind it, you know, all give us pause. And I think that's why you saw a huge sell-off in value, you know, especially the highly cyclical names, you know, over the last couple of months.
1: Yeah. Let's bring in our headliner of the day, Brian Belsky. He's the chief investment strategist at BMO. He joins us live today from Minneapolis. Good to see you again. Welcome back.
6: Thanks for having us, Judge.
1: I'm going to play off the Tom Lee thing today. Uh, he says the market's focusing half empty. Are you a half empty or a half full guy today?
6: Half full, brother. Uh, it's always better to be positive. You need to have faith in and, and what's faith in our market. Got to be realist, though. And fundam- Got to be a realist. a realist. Can't be a Pollyanna. So Got to be a realist. So here's my, here's my Pollyanna, uh, non-Pollyanna. Well, the market is transitioning into more of an earnings-driven market. There's no, there's no doubt about that, Scott. And in earnings-driven markets, uh, the, re- the return structure becomes much more volatile, quite frankly. And actually, uh, still remains positive, but obviously not as positive than in a momentum market. That's number one. Number two is we've had a heck of a run in markets, and and I don't know about you, but I'm having a hard time getting hold of clients. I've had more out-of-office responses to the last two reports I put out, so I think a lot of people are on vacation from a a personal basis. I think that's exceedingly positive, but I think we're kind of getting back into this August-September doldrums. Number three, next week we have Jackson Hole. And if you remember last year, Mr. Powell changed the mandate on the Fed uh, and moved away from inflation to employment. We moved our our market targets up last year at that time because we knew that the gas was gonna be on the Fed for a while, and I think next week could be an interesting, uh, but at the same time, I think the Fed's gonna be playing defense uh, with respect to uh, the taper, and so that's why we put out our piece last night in terms of too much taper vapor uh, in the markets, and I think the markets want the tantrum because, quite frankly, the majority of institutional clients are underperforming this year. They want to be able to buy the dip. They miss the move. Uh, and we actually think that there's a very good chance that the market could actually rally uh, when we know what the taper is going to be. Oh, by the way, just like it did last time, the market, when Bernanke uh, talked about taper, hinted about tapering in Congress in May, market was down 5.8%. Uh, between, uh, right after that, the market rallied 10%. By the time the Fed began to taper and then actually began to QE, 11 months later, stock market was up 10 percent. Drop the mic. We're, We're being way too, way too short sighted on this. We need to focus on double digit earnings growth, still very low interest rates from a longer term perspective and stop trying to time the market and call for all these near term corrections.
1: Well, but do you think we are on the cusp of a correction? Because we're going to get the taper. I mean, you painted a scenario in which we could get a pullback of, of, you know, some unsettling feeling. But of course, you think it's a buying opportunity. But before we get to buy, are we going to be worried about a sizable correction first?
6: Not a sizable correction. I'll go on record, not a sizable correction. Anybody that can call a sizable correction, God bless you. A sizable correction was our, our cyclical bear market we saw last year, which was a once-in-a-lifetime. We've had corrections of 10 to 15 percent through all bull markets. Remember, we think we're in a 20 to 25-year bull market. Scott, has got a six percent correction. It's not going to tell me to be bearish, quite frankly. And I think people cannot be fast enough, Jack be nimble, Jack be quick, but on your network for over 20 years talking about don't time, try to time the market. Be an investor, and it's proven correctly. So you have to stick with your process and discipline. Clearly, we would be adding to portfolios on pullbacks, but we're going to stay fully invested because that's how we make money and that's how we run money longer term.
1: I mean, look, City is out with a note today: higher yields, higher equities. Tapering is fine. This is I'm quoting I from their fun. note today. Tapering is finally at our doorstep, but we do not think that it will be overly disruptive for markets. I mean, it sounds to me as though you're in that camp. And oh, by the way, I mean. The Fed has gone to concerted effort this last 2 weeks to kind of condition everybody that yeah, the taper's coming, probably coming sooner than you thought, and it's all good and because there's still enough liquidity that's going to be still pumping into the system, right? It's like you're you're taking a couple of things off the plate, you're not stealing the whole meal.
6: Right. We have a really cool chart in our report that we published last night that looks at uh, the 10-year Treasury going back to 1962, where the average 10-year Treasury is 7 percent, Scott. I mean, that's some perspective, right? And then the average Treasury since the great financial crisis is 2 percent. I think Citigroup is, is spot on. And what we've also said is that historically, going back more decades than the 1960s, when the stock market rallies from low interest rate levels, from low levels, when interest rates, I'm sorry, start going up from low levels, the stock market does significantly well because that means the economy is improving. And I think Mr. Saperstein is spot on with respect to the secular growth argument. Earnings are going to continue to grow. You need to be a tech investor longer term. But over the near term, the ebbs and flows of the market are going to make you want to be equal weight growth and value and equal weight small, mid and large. So we talked earlier, you talked earlier on, on the, in the broadcast about small cap underperforming. Now's the time to buy the dip in small cap and be equal weight across the board.
1: Oh, okay. That's a bold move. Uh, It's getting a nice lift today, obviously. Hey, Pete Najarian has a question for you, Uh, Brian. Pete?
2: Hey, Brian. Great to have you on, man. I'll tell you what. I'm curious about this. We all watched volatility this week. Last Friday, it was a 15. And we actually got close to 25 yesterday, close to 24 today. And now we're back underneath 20 once again. So is that something that ever comes into the factoring that you're looking at the volatility side of the market and and if we do get one of those four five six ten percent pullbacks that you don't think is going to be uh... uh the world the world is coming to an end what specifically are the areas that you would be targeting that you'd say you know what on a five or six or ten percent pullback i'm looking at this sector because i think this is the sector to all
6: well thank, nice to see you uh, as well my minnesota brother i would say uh... You know, I'll answer it in reverse order. Uh, I would be buying tech, communication services, and consumer discretionary with both hands and both feet on any kind of pullback over 5%. I would, because those are going to be your structural, secular leaders of this uh, economy for the next 20 years. That's number one. Number two, from a volatility standpoint, you know, we run nine equity portfolios. All nine of our equity portfolios, by the way, are outperforming their individual benchmarks year-to-date because, again, we're longer-term investors, but what we look at instead of the VIX, Pete, is we look at the standard deviation of returns. And as sta- the standard deviation of returns um, start to decline again when the VIX falls down, of course, because everything goes down or up together. What we've seen, though, and I think people are missing this, is that the standard deviation of returns has been very high. That means you ha- have to be a stock picker. That's why a lot of the mutual fund complexes, quite frankly, are underperforming because they own too many stocks. You need to own more concentrated portfolios, a quote unquote big boy position mm-hmm. of four or five percent in a stock, own 40 or 50, and that 's how you all perform
1: let me let me uh, have you leave us where we started our, our program today, Brian, and opine on what you think is more important to the market 's next move, the fact that Microsoft continues to perform exceptionally well or the fact that Amazon, another one of the Fang plus critical stocks, obviously big market cap is is not doing well of late, which matters more
6: I think amazon I, I always love to uh, agree with Pete, but you know there was a wonderful point brought up in terms of the management change in Microsoft. Ma- Microsoft underperformed for a decade and then Satya came on and really retooled the company. I don't, Andy doesn't really have to do a lot of retooling with Amazon but it's clearly underperformed but remember the consumer discretionary sector is skewed really by two stocks Tesla unfortunately and Amazon and so I think Amazon has the opportunity uh, I'm a little quite frankly worried about the bricks and mortar business but I mean they'll figure it out because they're one of the best companies in the world but if you take a look at the dichotomy between both companies. Microsoft's a dividend growth company, and Amazon is, is putting the money back into the business. So one's, capital gro- one's using, their cap- they're using capital in different uh, areas and directions, but both should be part of your portfolio.
1: Right. Have a good weekend, man. Appreciate it, as always. Love the conversation. Thanks. We'll catch you soon. That's Brian Belsky. BMO from Minneapolis today. Up next, oh boy, Josh Brown. He just added a new stock to his portfolio. He's going to join us. He's going to reveal the name. He'll tell you why he bought it. So you do not want to miss that. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back on the half in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises.
5: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones.
7: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Some NATO nations are suggesting troops be kept in Kabul after the August 31 withdrawal deadline. NATO Secretary Stoltenberg says more time may be needed for evacuations. On the news, Richard Engel reports on what it takes to escape Kabul. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Anxiety about COVID in the U.S. has jumped to its highest level since winter. According to a new poll from the Associated Press, 41 percent of respondents say they're very or extremely worried they or their families will become infected. The U.S. has extended its ban on non-essential travel at border crossings with Canada and Mexico. American border communities that rely on shoppers from those countries have urged the Biden administration to lift the ban. The restrictions will now remain in place through at least September 21st. And legendary NHL-goi Henrik Lundqvist is retiring. Did I get that right? Uh, Henrik was a five-time All-Star during a 15-year run with the New York Rangers and is a likely Hall of Famer. He signed with the Washington Capitals this past offseason but never played after undergoing heart surgery. Scott, back to you.
1: You got it right. You got it right, (laughs) Kelly. (laughs) Thank God. I'm bummed, too, too, because I was hoping to see Henrik Lundqvist in a Capitals sweater. But... Wish him the best. All right. We teased ahead of the break that our Josh Brown has added a new stock to his portfolio. He joins us now. And, Josh, you were asked specifically about this, I think, yesterday. You said you were taking a look at the big Z, right?
0: Yeah. And I decided to pull the trigger today. I bought, I bought about a third of, I think, the ultimate amount that I'll have. And I don't want to give people the idea that I think Zillow has – like definitively bottomed. As I mentioned yesterday, I've been stalking this stock since 120. It is absolutely still a falling knife and still in a very well-defined downtrend, but it's cheap enough for me at this point. This thing is in a 55% drawdown. I think it's one of the best web companies in, in the world, quite frankly. And I love what the strategy uh, is 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 transforming this company into.
1: I think one of our viewers asked you specifically yesterday, I think it was yesterday, maybe what like a hundred bucks was, was the line in the sand that they were sort of talking about whether it looked attractive under a hundred. Is that right? You recall the conversation that we had yesterday uh, from one of our viewer questions in the last Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think what's going, look, I think what's going on with Zillow is that everyone knows the real estate mania driven by the pandemic is not like a forever thing. And eventually we'll go back to trend And that's okay, that makes sense, that's understandable. It's also misunderstood because it's like nine companies in one. Zillow three years ago was basically selling leads to realtors, and then they decided they want to get involved in the transactions themselves. So they're doing the mortgage business now, which is like the ultimate no-brainer. People are on the site looking for real estate. Why wouldn't they convert into um, uh, lending customers? But the bigger business, and I think the business that's going to take over this whole company is the iBuying. So going on Zillow, putting in your address, answering a couple of questions, and immediately getting an offer from Zillow. They bought 3,800 homes last quarter, which is the most ever. That business has the potential to be explosive when you consider how much people hate the process of buying a house. So they're not the only player doing it, but they are the biggest. I think they'll be the best. And uh, that's why I want to get into the stock uh, because of this big drawdown. And what I think is a misunderstanding, it could definitely go lower. Uh, you know, I I don't want anyone to like rush in thinking I'm saying it bottomed or whatever. Um, if it goes lower, I'll be buying more. And with that, I'm going to go back on vacation. So thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, he, uh, you go. <laughs> well, I appreciate done, the man. fact that it's, you came it. on to talk it's, summer, about it. it's August, Friday. I'm chilling. I, that's it for me. Yep.
1: Yeah. I love it. All right, I love the look. Thank you, man. Have a good weekend. We'll see you. We'll see you next week. Anytime anybody yeah. makes a move on the committee, you know we like to know about it. We want to alert our viewers anytime anybody does anything. We do have some other moves to talk about as well. Bryn you bought Freeport, uh, which is interesting. Hit its 200-day moving average. Commodities in question of late. Why this one?
4: Yeah. So I think first of all, let me tell you the trade I did, and then I'll walk through why. Is you know I bought Freeport around 32. And then I like to have hedges on some of these more volatile type 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 stocks like Freeport. Obviously, it's with copper, and so I sold the January 38 calls and collected about two dollars. So I collected about six and a quarter percent income over the next five months, and I have about you know eight, eighteen, eighteen and a half percent upside um, on the on the stock. So first of all, technically, Freeport has really strong support around 32, 31.50, 32.50 it also just hit its 200 day at that level. So I had been waiting patiently to get into the name. And I think that what what people need to realize is it's about 33 percent off its May high. One of the big reasons is copper. I mean, China is about 58 percent of the supply of copper or demand of copper. And so when China sneezes, copper can catch the flu. And so I think with you know, the Chinese potential slowdown that you're seeing, you know, copper's obviously been very levered to that. That being said, I think where, and this is much more known this year than last year, you know, copper is really a green metal. And what I mean by that is I feel highly confident that governments and individuals are going to spend billions and probably trillions of dollars transitioning from fossil fuels to green energy. And when you look at the mineral, one of the key minerals outside of lithium, most important in that, whether it's um, windmills, solar panels, electric vehicles, it's copper. And so I think you're going to have more new entrants come into this come into this um, sector, copper in general. But I like Freeport macmoran because they own the biggest copper mine, co- copper mine in the world. So it goes well with my lithium right. position I have with LIT and my energy position as well.
1: All right, let's get to Pete. Uh, Pete, you bought calls in Alcoa. Um, I do recall there, right, Josh Brown has been pointing to that chart saying that that, that one looks ready to break out. Uh, apparently, you saw some of the same uh, activity in it you must have if you bought calls there you also sold calls in Palantir Bank of America Macy, snap Penn gaming and CrowdStrike but focus on why you bought new calls in Alcoa for us
2: yeah I've already been positioned in Freeport and, and it's great to see Brennan there as well and I, I like what uh, what's what's going on on this pullback specifically in in Freeport but I look at Alcoa and I I, I think the same thing and we have some great chart analysts at, at market rebellion who have been talking about this as well and, and when we see the options come in to kind of give us that much more confirmation of what they're already talking about, it's an easy one for me to just take a shot and say, you know what, I'm going to own these calls. So I do have calls in Alcoa. I do think we're ready to see another move back up. It just was up well above 40 and then just pulled back. So I think the opportunities are there, Scott. I like what we're seeing in a lot of different material space of late. We're starting to see more and more options come into that space. And I think there's some names that really have some upside.
1: Uh, just pick one of the ones that I mentioned ahead of that to talk about why this uh, Palantir, B of A. I'm assuming Macy's hit. Obviously, I mean the stock was absolutely uh, ripping yesterday. Snap, Pen Gaming, CrowdStrike.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Macy's was was phenomenal in, in terms of that huge move, and a lot of that has to do with that short interest, which is part of the reason why options can be such a great tool in something like this, because when you get that kind of a move, that overreaction because of the short, that does give you an extra spike. I think the one that was most interesting for me was snap, how quickly snap literally just made that quick, rapid move. They were buying calls just a couple of days ago in Snap, Scott. Stock was underneath 71, and then all of a sudden they come in and they buy gigantic numbers of options in the very short term, which most everything we've seen this year has been very, very short term. Again, this one was as well, and it already produced. So today I got out of those Snap calls.
1: All right. I appreciate that, Pete. Rich Saperstein has a move that you need to know about as well. We're going to do that right after the break. Plus, we'll take a look at a number of stocks hitting new highs today. A lot of ownership on the desk. We'll trade them next.
8: B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60 day free trial at LinkedIn.com slash halftime report. That is LinkedIn.com slash halftime report for a 60 day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to LinkedIn.com slash halftime report and get started.
1: All right, we're back. Teased before the break that Rich Saperstein had a move you guys need to know about in his portfolio. Rich, you added to Walmart uh, one of those big retail names in the news of this past week, it's lagged target by a lot over the last year at least.
3: Yeah, so we look at uh, retailing as uh, e-commerce plus big box. And, you know, we saw the announcement this week that Amazon is going to be adding 30,000, 30,000 square foot, 30,000 square foot stores. Uh, Walmart's already there. They just have to build out the Walmart plus brand. And we think they're going to do that. They're selling at a six and a half percent Uh, free cash flow yield. Uh, We see a lot of the stimulus checks, the large cash balances, the strong consumer as leading to higher same-store sales. Uh, And we added it to our position with Amazon and Costco, which uh, I've owned since 1998. We can think back
1: that far. You added to to Costco also because I was going to hit that next. That's one of the stocks that's hitting a new 52-week high today.
3: Now, I've had Costco now for decades. Uh, it, again, here you, you have the same situation where you have great online, you have big box. The free cash flow yield is is lower. It's 4% uh, versus uh, Walmart, 6.5%. But these companies are all going to grow and benefit from a stronger consumer. Keep in mind, there's 8.5 million people unemployed. They're going to get back to work, and we're going to still have more consumer sales and higher comps in same stores
1: all right jenny why don't you finish this segment out for us you got thermo fisher that's hitting a new high today
5: All right, so this is one of those beautiful things where we actually added it march 27th of last year when things were just terrible and we're actually as confident in holding it now as we were then so here you've got a company that does Testing, Right. That makes testing equipment. So with the emergence of the Delta variant, with maybe the permanence of COVID in our system, knowing that there's just going to be more and more testing needed, that is nothing but good for Thermo Fisher's Fisher's business in the long run. This year, they're producing $22 of earnings. That's before the Delta variant. So we think that that could even grow more. By the way, that's up 13% year over year. Um, It's just a great company, high free cash flow yield, totally solid, slightly lower than market multiple, Um, really confident owning it for the very long run.
1: Okay, thank you for that. Still ahead, Pete. He has unusual activity. He's going to bring you that. We're back in two minutes. Bill Ackman, he may be pivoting on his SPAC. Our Leslie Picker following the money on that. Hey, Les.
9: Hey Scott, that's right. Pershing Square Tontine in the red again today, trading below its net asset value for the second day in a row. There, you can see 1981 right now. Last night, Bill Ackman penned a letter to shareholders where he noted that his Spac's ability to consummate a merger under deadline is quote impaired by a lawsuit filed earlier this week. The case took aim at whether Ackman's Spac should instead be regulated as an investment company since, like most banks, it invests the capital raised in things like U.S. treasuries while hunting for a deal. In this recent letter, Ackman called the lawsuit meritless and shareholder destructive. But he notes that the, quote, nature of the suit and our legal system make it unlikely that it can be resolved in the short term. As such, he's focusing on an Ackman creation known as Sparks, or Special Purpose Acquisition Rights Company. Unlike a traditional SPAC, a spark would give investors the choice to invest in a deal after it's announced, as opposed to the reverse, as is the case with the traditional blank check model. Ackman said if the Spark vehicle is approved by the SEC and Spark warrants approved for listing on the NYSE, he'll seek shareholder approval to return the $4 billion in tontine capital held in trust. Scott, but certainly the controversy is not over at any point uh, for this SPAC, which we've talked about many times here on this show.
1: Yeah, there's a retail angle here, too. Right, Leslie? I mean, there has been some talk throughout this week or so about some retail investors feeling burned by this whole thing. What do we know?
9: Absolutely. I mean, when you look at shares trading the way they are in this SPAC, this was seen, and and Bill Ackman came on our air and said this is the most shareholder-friendly SPAC that's ever existed, just based on the way that its compensation structure is. Now you've got a situation where they had this deal with Universal Media Group, they abandoned that, uh, this lawsuit, this latest kind of about-face looking at sparks and potential to return all of that capital to shareholders. You look at the, uh, the Reddit boards, and there are uh, some very strong Reddit boards dedicated to this SPAC in particular, with more than 15,000 uh, people speaking on it. And people feel a little burned mm. at this point in time, kind of comparing it to the Titanic, a sinking ship, get out while you can, people talking about all the money they lost on this thing. So uh, yeah, it's, a, it's definitely an angle here.
1: I mean, it all just happens, too, while there's just more scrutiny overall on SPACs, Sparks, whatever you want to call it, right? I mean, the microscope is firmly uh, here.
9: Right. Right. And of course, this one being the largest ever gives it a larger microscope than you may see with other SPACs. People say that the lawsuit that was filed against Pershing Square Tontine in particular is one that could technically have been filed against any SPAC out there because this idea that they will invest in treasuries uh, and market funds, money market funds that hold U.S. treasuries, that's common among the entire asset class. And so the fact that this one is the largest led to some unique challenges here, especially as it pertains to finding a a target to consummate a merger with.
1: All right. Good stuff, as always. Leslie, thanks for following the money for us on the Halftime Report. That's Leslie Picker. We have Pete's Unusual Activity next. All right, Pete, Unusual Activity. It's yours
2: all righty i'm going to start off with activision scott now this is a stock that you go back to february it was hundred and four dollar stock today it was trading closer to eighty three dollars and obviously stay-at-home stock that a lot of people were talking about last year during the midst of the pandemic But we did have some huge buying come in. As a matter of fact, September 3rd expiring, the 87 strike call. Stock was trading, as I say, right around 83, maybe a little bit higher. They bought 10,000 of these calls, Scott, about 55 cents all the way up to about 75 cents. I'm in these calls. I like when I see something like this. It makes a little sense to me that maybe we'd get a little bounce back as we are starting to feel a little bit more about the Delta variant. So that made a little bit of sense. I like this name. I'm in this name. The next one I've got for you is a name that I'm not really all that excited about it's the fxi now it's it's china a large cap but i've been watching this and we've all seen it it's gone from 54 all the way down now it's trading right on the lows and maybe that's Part of the thinking here is that we can at some point start to see a little bit of a bounce, but we, we have some huge call buying in here in this FXI. We've got 20,000 of the September 39 calls, Scott. They paid about a dollar twenty for these calls. They also bought other calls as well, looking for some upside, the 40 and a half calls. So we are seeing some activity here, looking for some kind of a bounce maybe in the FXI. I'm in these calls. I don't necessarily believe in this move, But after the move from 54 down to this level, I think it does make some sense that maybe there's a little bit of a bounce back.
1: Very interesting, gutsy move. All right, we'll see how that all shakes out. Pete, thank you for that. We'll do final trades next. A reminder, tune in tonight at 6 p.m., a special edition of Fast Money, focusing on the next generation of innovation, disruption, and the technology that will impact your money, health, entertainment, transportation, and much more. The next is live tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC. All right, Bryn, you got the first final trade for us on this Friday. Start us off.
4: Um, LIT, it is a global lithium ETF. Um, it's the full vertical of lithium from mining, refining, and battery production.
1: Okay, Jenny Harrington.
5: SL Green is the owner of Class A New York City office space. It's space has had its lights knocked out while people have been worrying about returning to office. Meanwhile, you get a 5.2 percent yield while you wait for the city to get its mojo back, which it will.
3: All right, good stuff. Rich Saperstein. Salesforce is the dominant contact management software provider. Growing at twenty-five percent a year, ninety-four percent subscription and repeat revenues. Okay. All
1: right, Pete?
2: Just a little bit ago I saw some very active buying in Hilton hotels out to November. Scott, mm-hmm. I'm not in this trade yet, but All I right. like I like what I'm seeing.
1: All right, good weekend, everybody. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's halftime report, the podcast can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Imagine a beautiful afternoon. The sun is shining and you get to enjoy it all because you just sat down on your John Deere mower. The smooth ride lets you escape into your yard. Intuitive controls make you feel like you're one with the machine. And with attachments for every season, you can enjoy it all year long. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand what it's like to drive a John Deere mower, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at JohnDeere.com get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.